Well, we have been in a series on Lord's Day morning since February regarding highlights in the life of Jesus Christ, and we followed kind of a trajectory from His incarnation through certain highlights in His earthly life, all the way through resurrection that we celebrated together on Resurrection Sunday, and have been looking at His ascension, something that's often forgotten. And when I initially began this series, I did not intend for it to fall uh, the way it has here at the end. This is, is probably our last sermon in this series. And uh, I knew that it would end with an aspect of the ascension and what we call the session of Christ seated at the right hand. But I was not anticipating that it would be the same day on which we are moving to ordain young man to ministry. And I thought only the Lord could bring those two things together, kind of some thought I had back in January, and orchestrate the events where today we would be landing on this aspect of Jesus' ascension and what He gives to His church, and the way He ministers to His people today. And so I'm thankful that the Lord has allowed this to coincide with our series that we've been on, on Lord's Day mornings. We've tried to answer this question that comes to people's minds, where is Jesus now? After His resurrection and He left the earth, where is He now? We noted last week the Scriptures are very clear that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. It says that in several different places. It was prophesied particularly in the Psalter in the 110th Psalm, the most quoted Psalm in your New Testament. Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. Well, what is He doing? What is He doing right now? Is He just waiting? Is He active? We noted last week from that 110th Psalm that Jesus is presently interceding or He's praying we're told in Psalm 110 that he is a priest after the Melchizedek order. That that is what he is doing right now, interceding for us uh, on our behalf before God. And he alone is designated as the forever high priest of that order, that he would ever live to represent us before the Father. But there's another aspect of what Jesus is doing now. I won't have you turn there, but in the 110th Psalm, you may recall that Psalm begins with a decree given to the one next to the Father telling Him to rule, to reign, as it were, in the midst of your enemies. And that's the other aspect of Jesus being seated on the right hand of the Father, that He is presently reigning as King. He was not someone banished from the earth, waiting yet a future time. He is presently reigning as king in a spiritual sense, and he will one day return to physically reign on the earth. But what is he doing as king? Well, that's hinted at in our passage. If you'll notice with me in Ephesians 4, we began reading in verse 7. There's a, a, a thought that keeps reoccurring in these verses. Look at verse 7. We're told Ephesians 4, 7, but grace was given to each one of us. Something given to all of God's people, to the church. And that was according to the measure, the end of verse 7, of Christ's what? Gift. What is Christ doing? He's, he's giving. Therefore, the end of verse 8, we're told that he gave gifts to men. And those gifts are actually identified in verse 11 that he gave, and now he's going to name four different offices or, or people given by God to aid the church. But notice the timing. Look again at verse 8. We read the end that he gave gifts to men, and this happened when he what, according to verse 8? Ascended. Upon his ascension, we're told he led a host of captives. It's, it's the idea that, that he's a conquering ruler with those captive in his train. And when he ascended to heaven, it was then that he poured out and he gave to his church. 
he gave certain individuals this context demonstrates for us in order to accomplish certain things in his church. So this morning, I want to walk us through this passage and note that Jesus is presently giving gifts to his church. What are these gifts? How do we know them? What are they for? Well, this is all a part of what we stated previously as the session or the seating of Christ, his rule from the throne of heaven over his church, and as he gives these gifts. Let's pray and ask God to help us understand this passage as we examine it this morning. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you how it describes and defines for us your present work among your people in this world. May we always give ourselves to being committed to following your word, understanding it, applying it, and living by it. And thank you that you've given us people to help us with that. In Jesus' name, amen. In the book of Ephesians, the Apostle Paul is addressing really the church in general. If you want an epistle that describes the church in a universal sense, uh, this is the epistle that you would examine. It's actually one of my favorite in the New Testament. It's actually, anytime I preach through a book, it becomes my favorite. But I do find myself time and time again returning to this particular epistle. Since the second chapter of Ephesians, the Apostle Paul has been talking about unity in a church. He does so because unity is so hard to maintain. There's so many things that lead us toward a kind of tribalism and, and wanting to separate and distinguish ourselves from other people. The Apostle Paul is just really focusing on the fact that God intended to save people and unify them bring people together from all different walks of life. In chapter 2, he's dealing with the great divide in the church between Jews and Gentiles. They had all kinds of backgrounds and, and religious understanding that just seemed to complicate their relationship to each other. And Paul just tries to cut through all of that baggage and says, don't you realize that Jesus Christ saved you both to make you one? And he's continuing that thought here in the fourth chapter about the, the essential unity of the body of Christ. He begins in chapter 4 by saying to, to walk in a manner worthy of this calling, to walk in a way that you understand what God has called you to. He's called you to oneness in Christ. And he says in order to have this kind of unity, it's going to take these kinds of things, verse 2, humility and gentleness, and patience, and bearing with one another in love. If you're really going to be unified as a body of Christ, you must have those things. And verse 3, you must be eager to maintain this unity. You yourself must work at this, and be eager to hold it together. Well, what is the unity that he's talking about? What's its nature? Look down at verse 13. He says, something is to take place. God has, or Jesus has given gifts to do certain things. In verse 13, until we all attain to the what? Unity of the what? The faith. Here's a unity that's being striven for. It's a unity of the faith. It doesn't mean the unity that we all believe. The, the article there, the faith, indicates the unity of what has been passed down to us. The unity of the corpus of biblical teaching regarding Christ and his rule and his church. And it's saying, this is the unity we're striving for, that we all have an understanding of the faith, what it is that has been passed on to us. And also this, verse 13 and of the knowledge of who? The knowledge of the Son of God to a mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Here's the unity that the Bible says holds a church together. 
it's when we all understand the faith, what it is that has been passed on to us through the sacred scripture, and we all mature to look like Christ. We become Christ-like. That's the goal. That's the unity. Well, how does that happen? How, does, how, do, how do week after week, when Heritage Baptist Church comes together and gathers, how do we maintain that unity and grow in Christ-likeness in our knowledge of the faith? Well, this is what our text describes. Beginning in verse 7 and running all the way down through verse 12, he says, here are the things that make for this unity. And in fact, there are things that we don't dream up as a church. They are things that the head of the church, Jesus Christ himself, has given to the church in order to accomplish this kind of unity. And you can see that very clearly. Verse 8, again, he gave gifts. In verse 11, here are those particular gifts. And they are to make this kind of unity. So the big idea is this today. Jesus Christ gives gifts to his church to bring maturity in Christ-likeness that results in the church's unity. I tried to walk you through that quickly, but at least you can come away from Ephesians 4 and say, here's what it's teaching us. That Jesus Christ gives gifts to his church to bring maturity in Christ-likeness that results in the church's unity. Now, this passage answers particular questions about that statement. When did Jesus give gifts? What are those gifts that he gave? And why, ultimately, did he give them? If you're looking for an outline, that's the best I could do today. At least it begins with W's, right? It's the when, the what, and the why. And so let's just walk through the passage and examine these questions this morning. When did Christ give gifts to his church? That's very easily stated, very plainly stated in the text. Again, look at verse 8. Therefore it says, and the Apostle Paul is going to quote from an Old Testament passage, and he says, when he what? Ascended. When Christ ascended, after that's the idea, he gave gifts. All right? And then verse 9, he elaborates on this idea of ascending. Look at verse 9. In saying he ascended, he's saying, well, what the psalmist said back there when he talks about him ascending, he says, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions the earth. Now, let me just deal with an interpretive issue here just very quickly. There are people that take this verse in a couple of different ways. There are actually three views. I'll just give you two of them. Some say, well, what it's talking about is Jesus Christ descended, and then when he died, he actually descended into hell. And after that, then he ascended back to the Father, demonstrating his victory. I don't think that's the best interpretation of the passage, but there are orthodox people that hold that view. I want you to be aware of it. I think our ESV does a good job in actually translating it so it's more understandable. And what he's saying actually is this. What does it mean that Jesus ascended except that he first of all descended into the lower regions or that he came to earth? What it's actually talking about is this that in order for Jesus to ascend back to heaven, he had to leave where? Heaven. And Paul's just mentioning, in order for there to be an ascension, Jesus had to descend. And what did he do? He came to earth. And what did he do? He died for us. But he was resurrected. And later he ascended. And that's what's being stated by the text, that Christ's exaltation and ascension resulted from his humiliation, taking upon him the form of a servant, and even his suffering and dying on the cross. But notice how Jesus ascended. Look again at verse 8. Here's the quote from the 68th Psalm. When he, Jesus, ascended on high, he led a host of captives. Now that's interesting, isn't it? You're wondering, who are those captives? How did he lead them? 
Well, again, look down at verse 10, because it describes this further, and it says, He who descended, that's Jesus, is the one who also ascended far above all the what? Heavens, that he might fill all things, or that he might be be above all these things. What does it mean he ascended far above the heavens? Is it talking just about space? Jesus arose from the earth and he went through the clouds and he was unseen and he even went past the second heavens, the celestial heavens, and into, into God's heaven. Well, I think Paul has more than that in mind because he's talked about heavenly things in the book of Ephesians a lot. Let me tell you what he describes about heavenly things in Ephesians. Look back at chapter 1. And look at verse 20, and we kind of dive right into the middle of a prayer that Paul is praying. And just notice verse 20 of Ephesians chapter 1. I think you'll catch the context when we begin reading. It says, speaking of of God, that, that God worked in Christ when He, that is God, raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand, where? heavenly places. You can see he's talking about this idea of ascension and even Jesus seated at the right hand. But notice when he did that, verse 21, it was far above all what? Rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet. Now, Paul uses this kind of terminology in verse 21, speaking of rule, authority, power, dominion, and other places in his epistle to the Ephesians. And in chapter 6, he uses it to describe spiritual beings, demonic beings, angelic beings. What he's saying is this, is that when Jesus ascended, he demonstrated his rule, his rightful rule over everything, seen and unseen. And it was like the coronation of a king. He has conquered sin and death, and that means everything is under his authority and his rule. That's why Jesus says in Matthew 28, all authority is mine in heaven and earth. Therefore, you go out and you tell people the king is ruling. Now, I want to take some time this morning and deal more closely with this quote that Paul gives us. Look again at Ephesians 4 and verse 8. Christ gave gifts when he ascended, and Christ gave gifts as a conqueror is what is being stated here. When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. I want to try to answer that question, what are these captives? Well, to do that, let's look at the context in which this quote is made, all right? So notice the quote very carefully, that Christ gave gifts to men. Now turn in your Bible to the 68th Psalm. We're doing a lot of turning in the Bible today, and that's a good thing, I want to remind you, because I'm helping you see that these things aren't a concoction I came up with, all right? Let's let the Bible speak for itself. So I encourage you to turn to these passages And when you turn to the 68th Psalm, the psalm is attributed to David, and it's a psalm that describes God as a conqueror, God conquering his enemies, but at a particular time. And notice this time. Look at verse 7. The psalmist says, O God, when you went out before your people, when you marched through the wilderness, The earth quaked, the heavens poured down rain before God, the one of who? Sinai, before God, the God of Israel. He talks about God leading his people, marching through the wilderness, and the earth quaked before Sinai. You tell me, what event is he talking about? You know your Bible, he's talking about the Exodus, when God led his people out of Egypt. Like a conqueror, he delivered them from captivity to Pharaoh. He led those people out of Egypt. They were led to Sinai. Now, notice our quote. Look at verse 18 of Psalm 68. 
You ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train. And what? Receiving gifts among men, even among the rebellious, that the Lord God may dwell there. What did you notice that is different there than what Paul quotes in Ephesians 4? In Ephesians 4, Paul quotes this verse and he said, He gave gifts to men. Here in Psalm 68, 18, what does it say about the gifts? God received gifts from men. Uh Uh-oh. Now you're having a conversation with your friend over coffee whom you've been trying to evangelize, and they bring up this verse and they say, guess what? The Bible contradicts itself. Paul got it wrong. What are you going to tell him? Say, I don't know. I'll tell him, call Pastor Matt. He probably knows. <laughs> well, it ought to be of interest to you. Psalm 68, 18, this word that's translated, the Hebrew word receiving gifts here, is a word that has the idea of it, of receiving something, yes, but in order to distribute that. For instance, it's used in Genesis chapter 18 when Abraham entertains these mysterious guests that come to his tent. And Abraham tells Sarah, go fetch some bread and water. And what he's saying is, I need to receive bread and water from you. And what was his intent? That he would distribute those to his guests. This word is often used that way. In fact, that idea is used of God receiving gifted men or or men chosen by God among his people that those men might in turn serve God shortly after the time of the Exodus. Let me show you that. Look at the book of Numbers. Numbers chapter 18. Numbers 18, this is an event in the wilderness wandering, right? And there has been a question about Aaron's right to serve as priest, he and his descendants. And there's been kind of a rebellion against that. We looked at some of this last week. The sons of Korah said, how come we don't get to serve like Aaron? All we get to do is carry furniture. Aaron gets to go into the Holy of Holies and present the offering. We want that too. And God protects the office of Aaron, particularly in chapter 17. And now on the heels of that, God is going to talk about these individuals that he has chosen to do different things, okay? Look at Numbers 18 and verse 1. So the Lord said to Aaron, you and your sons and your father's house with you shall bear iniquity connected with the sanctuary, and you and your sons with you shall bear iniquity connected with your priesthood. Verse 2, and with you bring your brothers also the tribe of who? Levi. God says, Aaron's a Levite. It's his particular line that serves in the priesthood and offers the sacrifice. But there are also other Levites, Kohath being one who rose up in rebellion, but they too are chosen by God to serve in specific ways. And now note verse 6. God says this, And behold, I have taken your brothers, the Levites, from among the people of Israel. They are a gift to you, but first they were given to who? To the Lord to do the service of the tent of meeting. Here's what God is saying. I led you out of Egypt, and I led you out. Remember, there was the the, the death of the firstborn if you didn't put the blood over the doorpost. And God says, the firstborn are mine. I have redeemed them in that way. And so when they were brought out, God said, instead of giving me all your firstborn sons, all you tribes, I'm going to take the tribe of Levi. They will be to me like those firstborn. And they are, as it were, gifts to me. I purchased them. But what I am doing is I'm giving them back to you to serve you. You see that? That's what it's saying. 
Now, the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 4 is picking up on that second aspect that God gives individuals to serve. Serve God through these individuals. So now go back to Ephesians 4. Paul says in verse 8, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captive and he gave gifts to men. Paul didn't get it wrong. What he's actually doing is picking up on the intent of those gifts received by God because that's what he's going to talk about in this context. He's saying this, it's like Moses coming out of Egypt and God chose those Levites. They were a gift to God and they would serve in their day. Even so, Jesus Christ conquers death. He delivers us. He redeems us from sin. He ascended on high as victorious king. He led in his train these captives. Who are they? They're the people he's redeemed. Like a conquering king would go in and set people free from a dictator. And now he's their new ruler. And he says he led these host of captives and them he returned and gave them back to serve. This is what Paul is saying. When did Jesus do this? After he ascended. We're told in John 16, Jesus said, it's to your advantage that I go. We're told in Acts chapter 2 that when Jesus ascended, he sent the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit would indwell his people, that those people would serve their king on earth. Told in 1 Corinthians 12 that the spirit that Jesus sent indwells believers and apportions gifts among them to serve the church. This is what Jesus does. Jesus' ascension is vital to the maturity and the unity of the church, just as the crucifixion and the resurrection, so the ascension, that he ascended on high and he gives these gifts. Now that's a lot to swallow. I almost feel like we should stand and take a break. But at least you understand the text. Now, what are these gifts? What are the things that Jesus gives to promote maturity and unity in the church? Well, again, look at verse 7 of Ephesians 4. Grace was given to who? Each one of us. Who's the us? Believers in Jesus Christ. We're going to have a relationship to God by faith. You know, you have a gift, and Christ gave you a gift, and that gift isn't for you like Christmas. Great, I got a gift. No, that gift was actually given to you so that you would contribute to the maturity and the unity of this body. Christ has given a gift to each one of us. But in this context, he focuses on particular gifts. Keep reading in the text. The end of verse 8, we read this in Psalm 18, he gave gifts to men. So verse 11, he gave particular gifts. What are they? Apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. Here the emphasis is not on the working of the gift, but on the individual person who is actually given as a gift to the body. What gifts did Christ give to his church? He gave apostles and prophets. What are these? I don't want to spend a lot of time on here. What's an apostle? Apostle is a sent one. In the New Testament, men chosen by Christ for service were apostles, someone personally chosen by him, someone who had eyewitness of the resurrection of Christ, someone that God confirmed their ministry by miraculous works, and they were foundational to the formation of the New Testament. Do we have any apostles today? No, because you can't meet those criteria today. But apostles were given by Christ to the church. He chose 12 men to serve him in a particular time in a particular way. We also have prophets that Christ gave. What are the prophets? Well, when you think of prophet, what do you think of? Actually, two things you should think of. Prophet, one sense, is someone who represents God to man. A prophet is one who foretells the truth of God or foretells, who speaks out truth for God. 
In a sense, I am prophesying today. I'm claiming to speak for God. This is what God's Word says. But oftentimes when we hear prophet, we think of the term of foretelling. Oh, a prophet is somebody who predicts the future, like an Old Testament prophet often would. There were New Testament prophets in the early church that predicted things that would happen. One's named Agabus, and he predicted what would happen to Paul. So you have these kinds of prophets in the New Testament. However, I don't believe that we have prophets in the sense today of foretelling the future. Why is that the case? Well, you have people that claim to be prophets, right? You have people that stand up and say, well, here's what's going to happen. This person will be elected president, or here's what's going to happen. Jesus is going to come at this time, or here's what's going to happen. How do you know a true prophet from a false prophet? If they predict something and it doesn't happen, what's your conclusion? They're a false prophet. In fact, that was God's test. If they weren't 100% accurate, they're not of God. That's not a prophet. And in the Old Testament, God says you ought to get rid of them. Now, there were New Testament prophets. I don't believe there are New Testament prophets today in the sense that people foretell the future, but there are prophets in the sense that they speak forth plainly the truth of God's Word. Here's the thing with this group. Look at Ephesians 2. Look at verse 19. Paul says this to this church, So then you, church, are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with saints and members of the household of God. What he talks about is God has saved you and brought you into his household. This is his church. And this church, according to verse 20, is built on what? A foundation. And what is the foundation? It's the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. What Paul is saying is this, the church was begun by Christ at Pentecost, and that church has a foundation that was laid like you would lay the foundation of a house. You only lay it once, and that was done by apostles and prophets, gifts Christ gives to his church for that specific foundation-laying task. But in my own personal understanding of this, when the New Testament canon was complete, the apostles and prophets were no longer needed. The foundation was laid. And so now you have other gifts. Go back to Ephesians 4. Christ initially gave gifts of apostles and prophets, verse 11, and then he gave evangelists and then shepherds and teachers. Evangelists and shepherds and teachers. I'm only going to have time to focus on one of these, really, and it's appropriate that I do. What is an evangelist? How many of you, when you hear the word evangelist, you think of a fifth-wheel trailer? Anybody? Am I the only one? Come on. All right. What is an evangelist? Well... Christ says it's a gift to his church, to you if you're part of the church. Don't you think you'd like to know what the gift is? Well, the word evangelist, the noun form of the word is used only four, three times in the New Testament. Here in Ephesians 4, it's used in 2 Timothy 4 when Paul writes to a pastor, Timothy, and he tells him, do the work of an evangelist. It's also used in Acts 21, where there's a particular individual that is called the evangelist. His name's Philip, and it's Philip the evangelist. Now, I think if we study Philip, we're going to learn something about what an evangelist is and why it was so important. But before we look at Philip, here's what I want you to note. The verb form of this term, evangelist, is used numerous times in the New Testament. So the noun, we would translate evangelist, but if you put it in verb form or active form, here's how it's translated. Look at Ephesians 3, and look at verse 8. Paul says, to me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach. See the word to preach? That's the verb form of the term evangelist. It means to evangelize. 
And the idea is to preach the gospel. It's to preach the good news about Jesus. So an evangelist, by definition of the word, was a gospel preacher. Someone that preaches the good news about Jesus. And you say, okay, but wait a minute. Isn't every believer supposed to do that? Every believer is supposed to tell people the good news about Jesus and evangelize and preach the gospel. So we're all evangelists. Yet Ephesians 4 says that there are particular individuals that are chosen for this task, uniquely gifted by God to do this, uniquely called of God to do this. Who are these individuals? And now I want to look at Philip. Look at Acts chapter 21. Acts 21, verse 8, jumping right into the context. Luke is writing. He says this, verse 8. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip. Here's the term, the evangelist. Who's this guy? Well, he was one of the who? Seven. So when I tell you Philip, who do you think of? You might think of one of the 12, right? There was a Philip who was an apostle, but this isn't that guy. He's one of seven. Who are the seven? We'll go back to Acts chapter 6. We're told in Acts 6 that there were seven men chosen from the congregation to help solve an issue in the church, the early church. And in verse 5, we're told what they said, what the Apostles said, please the whole gathering, Acts 6, 5, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and who? Philip, and then there's Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, those, that rounds out the seven. This is the Philip we're talking about. It's Philip the deacon, one of the seven, okay? What does Philip do? Well, we know here he's, he's a deacon in the church. He serves people, right? But here's what's interesting. Acts chapter 7 records the stoning of Stephen. He's the first martyr of the church. And from then on, persecution bears down upon the church and people began to spread out. And look at Acts chapter 8. Look at verse 4. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution went about doing what? Evangelizing is the term preaching the word. Verse 5, who did this? Philip. You see? He's doing this. He's evangelizing. And he goes down to the city of where? Samaria. Now up to this time, the gospel, the good news about Jesus, has only been proclaimed in Jerusalem. Samaria is broadening now. And now persecution scatters these people. And Philip goes to Samaria. And what does he do? He preaches the gospel. He evangelizes. Look at verse 12 of Acts 8. As he does so, people believed. When they believed Philip, as he evangelized, he preached the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, and they were baptized. What's he doing? He's proclaiming the gospel. People are coming to faith in Christ. He's doing that publicly. He's also doing it privately. Look down at verse 26. Now the angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise, go toward the south, go down toward Jerusalem, the Gaza. And what happens? Verse 27, he meets an Ethiopian eunuch. And young people, you remember from Sunday school, the story about Philip and the Ethiopian on the chariot? This is where we read about that. This is the same guy. He evangelizes. He tells him about the truth about Jesus, about the gospel. And he's baptizing believers. This is his work in Samaria. Now go to Acts chapter 9. Look at verse 31. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace. That's interesting. In Acts 6, when we're introduced to Philip, there's only a church in Jerusalem. We're told Philip evangelizes, and now there's a church in Samaria where Philip had been. What did he do? I think he started that church. He planted that church. 
Look back at Acts 8. Look at verse 40. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he did what? He preached the gospel in all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Philip preaches wherever he goes. Finally, he ends up in Caesarea. Look at Acts 18. Look at verse 22. Now, this is speaking of Paul, but notice it says, When he, when Paul had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the what? The church. There's a church at Caesarea? How did that get there? Well, who went there? Philip went there. What did he do? He preached the gospel. He saw people baptized. I think he started the church there. Finally, Acts 21, now we read, Paul goes to Caesarea, and when he's there, verse 8, on the next day we departed and came to Caesarea, we entered the house of Philip, the gospel preacher, the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and Luke and Paul stay with him. Wherever Philip goes, he preaches the gospel, and where he has been, churches are established. He's an evangelist. What would you call that? You know what I would call that? A missionary church planter. Somebody gifted by God to a church to advance the gospel into places where it's never been, to see people come to faith in Christ, publicly identify with Christ in baptism, and organize together in a church. That's what I would call an evangelist. You know anybody like that? I think tonight <clears throat> we're going to be able to confirm that. That we actually have somebody raised up in our congregation that God has said, here's a gift. Send him out. Get behind him my gift to the church. Put him out. Support them. That's a gift. <clears throat> there are other gifts. Back at Ephesians 4. That's a very important gift. Not everybody is called to do that, but Christ does do that, and he gives those things to a church The other gifts in verse 11, they're shepherds and teachers. These are men gifted by God to care for the church. Their role is to teach the church, to explain to them the word of God, the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. This is a gift by God given to his church Men gifted to care for his church through the careful teaching and instruction of God's word. Finally, why did God give these gifts? Why did Christ give these gifts to his church? Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 12 says what? These gifts are given to equip. I'm so thankful, Brother Bruce Buchanan, whom you'll hear tonight, he, he mentioned this yesterday in the ordination council and said this is a very important part of the calling of a Christian minister is to equip the Lord's people. And that indeed is the case. How do these evangelists even, and particularly shepherds and teachers, equip people in the church? Well, think with me. What do all four of these offices have in common? An apostle, a prophet, an evangelist, and a, a, a pastor-teacher. What's, what's the one common thread in those things? They're all verbal gifts. They're all engaged in instruction and teaching. And their instruction and their teaching is not of their own opinion. It's based upon God's revelation. Here is what God has said. Here is what God has said to us. Here is what we must know. 
Therefore, here's what we must do. That's equipping people. Lord's Day after Lord's Day, you sit here and you hear this guy get up here and wave his hands and get excited and talk to you about the Bible. That's the best thing I know to help and equip you. That you would understand who Jesus is. We would have a unity of the faith. It would build maturity in our body so we're all like Jesus Christ. So then you all could speak truth to one another, as the text will go on to say. This is God's plan. The equipping is done through the teaching of God's word, not one's personal opinion or particular emphasis. It's through the plain instruction of God's word of truth that matures and equips. God gave gifts to equip the church for service, and ultimately God gave gifts to promote unity. When this teaching happens, we're told in verse 13, we all attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature manhood. We all become more like Jesus Christ, and that's what Christ is doing through his gifts given to the church. Jesus Christ gives gifts to his church to bring maturity in Christ's likeness that results in the church's unity. Do you see that? All right. So what? Let me give you three things. One, men, young men, old men, You should be open to this kind of calling on your life. You ever thought about that? Maybe the Lord Jesus Christ has given you as a gift to be able to stand up and proclaim his truth among his people that they would be equipped and mature in Christ's likeness. Most of you, like myself, at a young age, that was the furthest thing from my mind. I wanted to play basketball in the NBA. That hope was quickly dashed. But I knew at one point when I was a young man, I was really wrestling with this. And God made it very clear to me. This is what I want you to do. This is what I've, I've given you to do. But there was a point where I had to really surrender to that and say, okay, I'll do it. Men, young men, older men. There's no age in this passage. You should be open to this. Not everybody is called to do this. I, I'm fully aware of that. That's why there's a church here to help you. But you ought to be open to it. Church, church family, we should expect that God is doing this in our midst. Where's Christ today? He's seated at the right hand of God. What's he doing? He gives gifts to his church. Does that include Heritage Baptist Church? Yes. We ought to be expecting that God actually would do this and raise up men among us who would fill these shoes, who would stand and speak for God. And we should be looking to affirm that. We should be noticing the gift when the word is ministered and be able to affirm that in them. Finally, all of us, I'm going to warn you, I'm going to step on your toes, okay? When we talk about this particular ministry, the way that God matures us, it happens on an individual level, no doubt, that's essential. But it does happen in this 
context where a gift given by the church stands up, opens God's word, explains it in detail, and tries to apply it. And that's how we grow, and that's how we are unified. And if you neglect those opportunities, you are not working toward the unity of the faith. If something is more important to you than this, you just got to say, I'm not really interested in Christ-likeness and the unity of the faith. You say, oh, but I'm busy. I've got, I've got so much going on. I've got this going on and this going on. Okay, let's, let's weigh what's important. What will last? This is Christ's gift to his church. He's told us plainly, this is how it happens. I don't have a better idea. But it's incumbent upon you to understand this is how Christ works today in his church. And I don't mean watching online, okay? I'm glad it's there. I mean physically present with God's people in a place where the word of God is expounded and the Lord of the church speaks through his word to bring us all into the unity of the faith and the maturity of the likeness of Christ and that we would minister to one another. And that's how God builds his church. But it's incumbent upon you to believe that and make commitment to that. Thank Christ this is his mind and this is his will. Because in this, all pats on the back are negated. Not anything that people do or a charismatic kind of personality or, or a great sense of fervor and enthusiasm that we get all worked up. Jesus says, this is my idea. And I'm actually going to give you the things you need to do this. And in the end, it all points back to the Lord of the church. Because he's seated at the right hand. And this is what he's doing. And for that, we give him praise. Let's pray together.